Hi everyone, it's Joaki Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Lars Jernoff, partner at EQT Ventures. Half VC, half startup, EQT Ventures is a multi-stage VC with 1.2 billion euros across two funds to help fuel European tech startups to become global winners. Lars started his career in gaming at King over 10 years ago and eventually transitioned into VC in 2015. Since then, he's invested in companies like Small Giant Games, Popcore, Traplight, and Reworks. We'll now hear more from Lars himself. But before we go there, Here's a few words from our sponsors. We all know that developing a great game is one thing, but developing a great games business can be something else entirely. That's why some of the top game developers in the industry use IronSource's GameGrove platform, which takes care of both sides of the business, helping you monetize and to fuel your user acquisition. I for one wish we were using these guys in the early days of Next Games. You might also have heard of their Level Up podcast and a Medium blog. In terms of gaming content, this blog is up there with the best, featuring game industry experts talking all things game design, development, and growth. See for yourself by searching for Iron Source Level Up on Medium or Spotify. Hey, game developer, are you looking for great new authentic video creatives? Try something totally new with influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific creative content for your games, and Opera Event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Get a free video with a purchase of four or more videos. Remember to say that elite game developers sent you to claim your free video. Go to getigc.com to see some examples and get more information. That's getigc.com. Hey Lars, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. It's great to have you. This is like a very interesting discussion. I've been a big fan of EQT, like the deals that you guys done, like the approach. So interesting to get going. The first question I wanted to ask you is to, to go back back in time and talk about how you made your way into to gaming and eventually to, to get into venture capital. Sure. Yeah, great to be here and thanks for the compliment. Uh, so I've always been a gamer. I, I, I mean, I'm the born in the early 80s. So my first uh, you know, experience with games was when I saved my monthly allowances to buy my Nintendo 8-bit in, yeah. you know, in 1990. And then I spent a good five years just playing that thing after school every day. Mm. Uh, and I've always been a big board game fan, you know, playing with my, my uh, parents or family or siblings. Uh, so I've always really liked competing and gaming and, and been in that world. And I also became quite an active chess player. Uh, chess for me is a, a really interesting game. Uh, but it's only fun if you, uh, you know, obviously if you play with someone who is about your same uh, the same strength as you are in chess, mm. but so that's sort of my background. And, and then I, 
I went to university and I started playing Texas Hold'em poker. Uh, if you remember, you know, in the early 2000s, there was this big uh, Texas Hold'em craze with all the World Series of Poker being on TV and everyone was playing. Uh, and I started the uh, Poker Players Association uh, at my university and, and really enjoyed that part. And then I did a couple of years in consulting and I moved back and I did a, a startup called uh, Bidster, where I was uh, head of product. Uh, and then Bidster was a, a lowest unique bid auction website. So sort of like a game, but in an auction setting. Uh, and we uh, were going to raise some money there in Q4 2008 uh, in the middle of the financial crisis. That didn't happen. So the company went out of business. And then I joined uh, King, uh, which was at that point a, a skill games website. You know, they were powering websites like Yahoo and MSN and, and various uh, uh, newspaper websites with their game sections. And you could play you know, you and I could play a mass free game. We put both put in one euro, and the winner gets a euro fifty, and King uh, raked fifty cents. Mm. Um, so I started there in, in two thousand and nine, and, and my job was to figure out sort of new revenue opportunities for King, because already at, at that point, two thousand and nine, you know, the iPhone had come out, Facebook had really grown into a massive platform, and and we saw that the players were uh, leaving these uh, traditional media platforms like Yahoo and Amazon. Mm. Uh, so my first year at, at King, I played about uh, 10,000 flash games, you know, these indie flash games on yeah. Newgrounds and Congregate. It was a website called uh, Flash Game License. Great guys so in the US. And they, they attracted all these indie developers who were sitting at home in their basements and, and creating flash games. So I, was, I played about 10,000 games, and we licensed about 200 of those games. Mm. And licensed by, at that point meant that the game was not yet released. We gave the, de the developer, you know, here's 2,000 euros, and then you, you put the King logo uh, inside of the loader of the game, and then we uploaded it on Newgrounds and Congregate and Miniclip and Not Doppler, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that was a great time, because I, I spent the whole year playing Flash games, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sounds like a dream job, right? <laughs> And that, that fitted me really well. And I, I started seeing patterns in games uh, out there. Because we, we then also put the tracking mechanic into the uh, Flash uh, files. So we could see how long people were playing for on yeah. each, in each game, where they dropped off. We, could, we even A-B tested icons of these games. If we make the icon more red, the more people click on it than the blue. Mm -hmm. Red is, by, by the way, the highest click-through rate. <laughs> <laughs> was back then. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that for a year. And then based on that, then we started uh, making some Facebook games. So we made an app called uh, FunFlow, which was a collection of these games. And that was launched in, in 2010. It was uh, King's first effort on Facebook. And that didn't work so well because it was a, like a, a platform within a platform. Uh, I think that doesn't really work. Uh, so we went on to, to start creating single app games on Facebook. And the first ones that I worked on were Minor Speed, which is like a Bejeweled Blitz type of uh, match three, one minute high score weekly competitions. That, that went okay. So it's a very long answer here, but <laughs> this is my, my gaming background. Interrupt me if yeah. I'm yeah. uh, too long worded here. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I produced Bubble Witch Saga, which was like one of the first uh, uh, deeper games. Mm -hmm. so I was the product manager for that. I worked very closely with a team of eight people yeah. uh, for about a year. And that became like the big breakthrough for King on Facebook. 
Uh, so that was a lot of fun producing games. And then I moved on to become, I started the mobile games team or business line at King. And there we did a, a, a fantastic early deal where we brought in the fabrication games guys. So Alexander Eckwell, who now runs uh, uh, Snowprint, and, and Tommy Palm, who runs uh, Resolution Games. They were at that point running uh, fabrication games, which was doing more work for higher uh, mobile games, but had a, a great tight team that had been producing mobile games for several years. Mm-hmm. So they were exactly what King needed when we were now, you know, at that point, moving from Facebook to also create uh, fantastic mobile game experiences. So this was in 2011. And then that team uh, ended up making, uh, together with some uh, King people we integrated, uh, and then we made a Candy Crush in, in 2012. So that was released It's uh, almost exactly eight years ago. It was released on November 5th, I think, mm. 2012. And then I spent a couple more years at King uh, making games. Uh, I started something called King Labs, which was experimental games. Uh, and then after about one year after King's IPO, I decided that I wanted to uh, learn something new in life. So I, I started a, a venture capital fund together with EQT and, and two other uh, partners. And, and now here I am, an active investor in, in gaming, especially mobile gaming. Yeah, that's quite a background and really good kind of like to understand like you were in gaming for so long. What, what kind of like shifted your mindset to think about venture capital as something that, that interests you? So I've I've always had more or less uh, three hobbies: so I've, uh, games, and I've I've always enjoyed making money. Mm. And the third one is sports, but let's park sports for now. <laughs> uh, but I think the the opportunity to work with both of those games and and uh, investing or money making. So I've been investing money, my own money, savings in in you know public stocks since I was uh, seventeen or eighteen. Right. I always enjoyed having this uh, business discussions with friends over dinner, uh, just because it's fun. And, and having the, the chance to combine two hobbies in one occupation, which is what I'm doing now, I think it's a fantastic uh, setup. Yeah. Um, I'm also a firm believer that to become really good at something, like really good you know, on a global level, you need to have as a passion, as a, a hobby as well, and not just a job. Yeah, yeah that component is super important. It drives kind of like meaning for what you yeah. want to do. Can you introduce like EQT and what's the approach now in investing specifically in gaming and how do you position it? Like what's the differentiation from the other folks who are doing gaming investments? Sure, I can start with EQT Ventures. So we, we are a, a multi-stage uh, venture capital fund. We right now have 1.2 billion euros under management. Our second fund we raised uh, last year and it's 660 million euros. Is one of the larger uh, VC funds in Europe. Our team is made up of people with startup experience or operational or executive or founding experience of startups themselves. And we think that's really important for us. That's the culture. Our, our tagline is half VC, half startup. We're running this VC also as a startup. We built this, something we call the mother brain, which is a, a data-driven uh, sourcing platform where we uh, collate a lot of data from various sources. And then mother brain continuously highlights companies to us that we have not uh, spoken to. As an example, so we're very product-focused. We're uh, startup people. And we wanted to start the VC that we would have liked ourselves when we were running startups. So culturally very close, again, to the startup mentality, having the experience of, of struggle and ups and downs and, and 
uh, sort of being there uh, in the same boat as the founders. Uh, that's what we want to do. Yeah. When looking at gaming companies, what what is the is their usual suspect like the the Goldilocks zone for EQT? Can you describe that? Is it like sure? So in, in terms of gaming, I mean, I would personally love to just invest in, in fifty gaming companies every every fund, but that's not how we set it up. So we at EQT we build a portfolio of you know fifty companies total, and with our fund size, we tend to start uh, with our initial investment around early Series A. Mm. So we don't have the luxury to invest in ideas or, or pitches uh, without an actual product to start uh, to look at. Yeah, I think there are great investors who are, or you know, great uh, pickers in terms of which uh, game idea would uh, end up working. Uh, but at, at uh, in our stage in our fund size, we we invest when the game is playable. It's in soft launch. Mm. Uh, we have some early retention metrics, and it's not just because of the the fund size. Uh, aspect. It's also, I mean, my own experience uh, producing seven games at King mm. is that every single time of those seven, I thought the game I was working on, you know, day in and day night, uh, you know, day out for, for six to 12 months was going to be the greatest game ever. But out of the seven, two were successes and five were failures, right? Yeah. It's, it's an okay. Bubble Witch Saga and Candy Crush were, were, ended up being good games, but the other five were not. And I think there's a, a learning, you know, having been in that situation too, that even if I think a game pitch in, in, in uh, you know, pre-production sounds fantastic, that doesn't mean at all that players will love it. Yeah. So at, with our fund size and with that learning, we, we tend to invest when, when there's a, at least a test flight available, ideally a soft launch in, in a couple of countries. We can look at some data. We can uh, try to figure out what the audience is and uh, the size of the category for this particular mm. game. Mm. Uh, and then we move on from that point. Yeah, just thinking about the whole, whole gaming space, which is super competitive, you know, there's a, a genre that comes up maybe once or like once a year, something hot comes up and then there's usually a winner in those genres. Like how do you, how do you go about betting at this kind of like A stage where you have some metrics? But do you bet on the team a lot because you want to see that this is the team that could win the genre? What are your thoughts there? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think in any creative business, and, and gaming specifically, it's, it's always a team bet. Mm. Because even if we see great metrics at the, uh, during the soft launch, that's just the beginning of the game, right? Maybe the team has spent one or two or three years uh, getting there. But mm. if, if the game shows signs of success, success you know, like uh, Candy Crush now, eight years in, it's yeah. still in the top list. So and you're always at the earlier half of a company journey. Uh, so it's always going to be a bet on, on the team. Mm. So, I think that being said, it doesn't necessarily always need to be the founding team that we're betting on. Uh, it, it is, but it, there could be other people in the company that are important uh, as well. I mean, for example, look at small giant games that, where we led the Series A. They're the team. The founders have been working together for multiple years and, and producing multiple titles. Uh, with various levels of success. And then Empires and Puzzles, uh, for that game, they brought in a, a new game designer, uh, Tim Lundqvist. Mm. And he was a core part of our investment in Small Giant Games as well. Because he was the one who had helped design that game that we were looking at. Mm. So it's, it's, it, it can be an extended team, not just founders. Mm. And we actually like it when, when the game teams have been working together for a longer period of time. I think you, you can see that as a, common denominator in, in the in the game companies we backed uh, 
so far with small giant games, you know, it's been six, seven years, I think, eight yeah. years now. Yeah. You know, you have Traplight, who also been producing multiple games before. You have the Reworks team, and most of that team also ran another startup before together. And you have Popcore in, in Berlin, founded by the uh, Heinz brothers, and they, they've been working together for 10 years before that. Mm. Uh, it's not the requirement, but it's, I think it's certainly easier to see a well-oiled production happening if you have people who know each other and have been working together for a long time. Yeah, I want to actually do a quick deep dive on the founders. I think that like thinking about scalability of the business, how the, the founders have that experience of scaling a business and also scaling themselves to, to kind of like for that role. What are your thoughts there? And have have you sort of like had that discussion of, okay, this team needs that kind of person involved who can scale versus does it really matter at the A stage yet? What do you think? I think it's a plus, but it's not a given necessity. I think yeah. we definitely don't want to rule out backing you know, a 23-year-old or a bunch of 23-year-olds mm. creating a great game. They've been working on it for a couple of years. I think as, as a venture capital investor, you need to be open to uh, uh, different setups in that sense. But you can have uh, you can add up things that, oh, this is a plus, this is a plus, and then you end up doing an investment. But I wouldn't say it's a requirement. And, and I think a lot of people learn on the journey there. Right? Mm-hmm. You don't need to have done it before. It needs to be the first time for, for everyone at some point. Yep. And, and the best founders are, are, I think, quick on their feet and, and learn while doing it, so to say. Mm-hmm. I also think gaming is, is quite unique in the sense that you don't need to build you know, multiple hundred of people companies, yeah. which is where a lot of other founders in other industries struggle. You, know, you can be a great leader for a 30-person team, but then when it's 300, it's a whole different thing. Yes, it's a different type of management. But most gaming studios, I think you know, small giant games went from uh, 15 people maybe when we, when we invested to uh, 45 mm. when, when Zynga bought it. Yeah, uh, I mean that's a, a massive growth, but it's still not a, a massive difference for the company itself. Right? Yeah. It's uh, still a small giant uh, with a lean team and everyone knowing each other. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Then over the years since you've been investing, uh, since you left King, what kind of things have you changed your mind about? What topics are you thinking of differently now in Q4 of 2020? Like understanding certain aspects that you didn't understand before. Have, have something come up there? Yes, yeah, so I, I think the, the biggest truth back then, if you look at that 2011, 2012, and, and even a few years after, yeah. Was that uh, you know mobile games come and go and they're one hit wonders and you know you you put it out and then people play it for six months you get featured you get a lot of installs and then they move on to the next game, I think that truth has been completely shattered in, in the past eight years. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at Candy Crush, you look at the Supercell games, eight years in and they have uh, hundreds of millions of players still playing those games. Uh, I think if everyone had known that truth, what we see today. And, and, you know, during that time, I think the outcomes of King and Supercell may have been a bit different than they were. I think the longevity of fantastic game titles uh, is much, much longer than, yeah. than the assumption. And I think you can see that in other parts of gaming as well. I mean, Super Mario, for example, has been a, a staple of, of gamers for 38 years or something. It's different games, but still the same IP and, and same 
basic setup of, of, of Mario running around uh, in, in the Mario world. And I think that's also likely, I think, to continue. That once you build these sort of major franchises, it's, it's here to stay. Unless you, yeah, well, here to stay. That, that, that's the, the main one, I think, that has yeah. changed over the years. Yeah. Yeah, because like, in a sense, like when you start seeing so many companies, like you guys are in, involved in like a big portfolio, probably like have a lot of this kind of like pattern recognition developing there for like what is a good like sign of something good to happen. Uh, is there sort of like something that when you went into investing, you were like coming with a certain framework in mind versus what it is now? I think that framework, I've, I've always been very focused on retention mm. in the games. Because my, my fundamental belief is that it's, it's more difficult to build a game that retains players than yep. a game that monetizes them. And if you have a game that retains players in the long term, let's say day 30, day 180, and we usually don't have it, you know, much longer than day 180 when we invest. But if you have that, then, then it's a matter of time before you can figure out what those players feel is reasonable to pay for. Whereas it's you, you can't really do it the other way around. In my experience, it's it's much more difficult to find a game or develop a game that has the long term engagement. I, th- I think another truth that has changed between when the last ten years, I think, is the the belief back then that games have to be increasingly difficult. If you think about the average game, uh, you know, in the two thousands or or even historically in games, is that every level becomes more difficult, and and every episode or you you face ever increasing challenges mm. and and i think if you look at some of the successful games for the past couple of years that's not necessarily the case i think yeah. there are a lot of really popular games that are not becoming more difficult they become more complex to play in the sense that you you do more and more different game loops or meta uh, meta play in the games but mm. they don't necessarily become intellectually or dexterity skill wise more difficult yeah i mean if you look at this whole a new genre of merge games or you look at uh, coin master those type of games and you we look at the story driven you know the type of games that play ricks or, or uh, tactile does uh, they're great games they're just great experiences but they don't necessarily become more and more difficult i think that's an interesting uh, development it's, it's been a Maybe a result of of more and more people in the world playing. So the average player is more casual today than it was before the iPhone, before smartphones came out, when people were a bit more: Are you a gamer or are you not a gamer? Yes. Like you and I were gamers, but you know the average fifty-year-old uh, was not a gamer, so they weren't playing. But today, I think more or less, you know, a majority of people around the world have some game on their phone. And that's been an interesting development uh, over time, I think. Do you think like certain areas in gaming are underserved at the moment, like be it capital, some founder passion, and like having or having this kind of like right solution that the market needs for something that should exist? Have you have you got any thoughts in that area? I personally don't think that way. I think it's it's a term being used by a lot of VCs. This market is underserved. I think personally, I mean, underserved is, I think, is a term that you have an insight that there's a demand out there mm. and no one else has that insight because if they did, they would have already served it, right? I'm not so sure I can identify what's being underserved. I'm much more 
let's say when the iPhone came, right? I mean, yeah. it's not like Steve Jobs started and thinking, ah, oh, is, is it an underserved need to have a touchscreen, you know, and an app experience? He started with a vision, probably, I, I don't know Steve Jobs, but I'm, I'm guessing he started with a vision that this is the future of, of you know, communication and apps in, in, in your pocket. And then he wanted to be, create the best possible experience. I think more in that way, also for the companies that I work with, rather than trying to figure out what's underserved. Yeah, it's, it is sort of like what comes from your own knowledge of what works, uh, what, what should be the next step for something that is working, uh, yeah, into what could be possible. Think about the, the pitch. What do you want to hear from founders regarding why they'd want you specifically to be investors? Like, I think this is like, I don't want people to start copying what you're going to say, but you probably know what I'm talking about because yeah. there's there's often these kind of like big spreadsheets of, hey, I have 200 VCs on this list and I'm going to be yeah. emailing all of them. But like, what is the approach that the founders could maybe pick up there? Yeah, I think if if they have multiple investors to choose from, I think that the best way is probably to speak with the other founders that that investor already works with. So to spend the time and the reference calling and, and I call up, so I, I work with right now four mobile gaming companies, call up any of the founders there. And I think it's, there's a lot of truth to that saying that yeah, your reputation or your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Yeah. And that's really important. So I think there needs to be, there needs to be a good personal chemistry. Mm. I think it needs to feel to the founders that we're a good match, uh, me personally and the, and the founders. And, and also culturally for Ikiti Ventures and the whole the whole team at the company. I think that's really important that you feel that you're in a have a good start in collaboration. You have open discussions, you have transparent, you can be direct and and, and open. Uh, that's really important. Mm. Uh, as I said before, you know, we we consider ourselves to be tech startup people. Uh, and for us it's really important to have that sort of collaborative environment. I think yeah. that's the most important part. I think in the end, you know, all what investors bring in, in it's also it's the money, right? We, you can have advisors, uh, but they're probably not going to show up with a, a 10 million euro investment. Yeah. So I think what ultimately what founders want is also someone who has the conviction to back you uh, with a, a large investment. Yes. And, and uh, that I think we, for the companies that are a good fit for us, uh, we have that. Uh, we want to be a multi-stage investor. So if we lead a Series A, in the gaming studio, and that studio delivers what they said that we're going to deliver, then we're happy to do another investment. So like in the small giant games case, where we led the Series A, I think we invested 4.2 million out of the first 5 million round. And then a year later, we did, was it 10 months later? 10 months later, we did 27 out of the 30 million Series B. I think that's the sort of luxury that I can have as a multi-stage investor with a large fund mm. to give my my founders or the founders that we work with the backing multiple times. Yeah, uh, if everyone is happy with the collaboration. Yeah, which makes sense. So. That's great. What kind of parameters do you see, like in companies that make decision making challenging? You talked about the retention numbers, but like, where where are you? in these kind of cases where you need to say no, even then, though there is kind of like really good metrics, sort of like that you can benchmark that these are really good, but like you don't need to name any any cases, yeah. but like what are these kind of like things that swing the decision towards a no? I think one one is uh, the uh, sub-genre size or 
this is one I think that is usually up for debate. And uh, there is a uh, part science and a part art because it's hard to predict what the future value of a of a genre will be mm. if if you're looking at what would be the best you know hopefully the best game of that genre or, or a genre creating game. Uh, but a very common reason why we pass on on investments, even though we have a great team and and promising metrics, is ultimately the the assessment that this is probably not going to be a three four hundred million euro revenue game. Mm. Uh, and that's a limitation that I, I have with, with a very large fund is that we need to see a path, not not the likely path, but there needs to be a path to a billion plus company yeah. evaluation. If I was an angel investor or a seed stage investor, maybe that requirement would be substantially lower, let's say 100 million or 300 million. But with a 660 million euro fund, we need to see a path to a billion plus, ideally much more, but yeah. a billion plus. And given the current multiples for, for smaller studios, let's say 3x revenue, that means that I need to f- gain conviction that there could be a 300 million euro opportunity for this game or this group of games if the studio is making multiple titles in the same, same genre. And 300 million, that's a lot of money, right? That's, yeah. that's, that's like top 30, maybe, grossing in the world. Yeah. Discount China. So do you kind of like constitute the, the whole subgenre as being something like, how do you measure that when it's a new subgenre? Yeah. And you only have 180 day retention numbers. Maybe monetization isn't still like there, like fully. Is yeah, that- so I think that's where the art comes in. I think there, there is no clear, you, you can't do an Excel formula and say, okay, yeah, it's 300 million. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> there needs to be a, a, a feeling based on experience. Uh, if, mm. if this is going to be appealing to, mm. you know, let's say 50 million DAU and they each pay a little bit, or if it's going to be very appealing to 2 million DAU and they all pay a lot. Yeah. Right. I think if you look at our investments, let's take uh, Reworks and their game Redecor, yeah. which recently actually past uh, Design Home, the incumbent leader in, in that. It's also a great game. Yeah. But there it was easier. We could say, okay, look at Design Home. Design Home is probably a 200 million plus per year game. Yep. We think Reworks and Redecor can be bigger than that. So that was actually a fairly easy decision for us to make. Do you make the, the call on, hey, this can be bigger based on like playing both games? Is that the, the de facto? What do you think? Yeah, playing both games. I, I, I like playing the older version or the you know the existing big title yep and, and try to benchmark myself do i think the new one here is it more fun is mm. it substantially more fun do i think it's it's going to be the winner in a couple of years i think that that's an important aspect but then there are obviously games that don't have that sort of uh, existing large title uh, which could also be very interesting i think battle legion there's no clear you know top 30 grossing game uh, yeah. like that so that one was more a combination of, I think, the quality of the game, um, uh, extremely high engagement numbers uh, in the early cohorts, and then uh, a, a bet or a conviction that this sort of mid-core, it's a very used term, overused term, mid-core, but yeah. this, this type of game genre where you, it's actually fairly casual that you don't have to be super engaged in the gameplay, yeah. but it's strategic and, and uh, engaging in the long term that has the potential to be a multi hundred million euro business. Mm. Yeah, I was definitely like when you guys were looking into, well, you were involved in Small Giant, the whole thing with playing games that were also in that subgenre, the puzzle, puzzle RPG 
it was clear that this was kind of like on a, on its own level. So definitely that model is really interesting. Like then when you need to say no to a deal, which maybe is, is too early for you, like do you usually feel that it's something that if, you know, somebody else who is at that pre-seed or seed stage should look at it, do you usually send deals over to other people? How, how does that work? I think if, if if the founders ask us to, then we're happy to make an intro. Yeah, uh, I think I, I know most of the guys who are actively investing in early stage in gaming. But normally we don't offer because I think there could be better paths to get a hold of those investors uh, than getting it sent from us. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I mean, there's a, a bunch of great firms that invest right. Uh, you know, maybe a year before us, like Play Play Ventures. We have uh, co-investments with Entraplight and and Reworks. Um, yeah. I think there's, uh, you know, London Venture Partners, obviously, Initial Capital. There's uh, several uh, very good ones. But I think they can probably get a better in than, than through me. Yeah. So the founders need to remember this, to ask for <laughs> intros. <laughs> yeah, if, if they want it. I, I think it's the same yeah. way. If, if you ask me, you know, how, what's the best way to get in touch with me? And I would say probably, you know, through one of the founders that I already work with. Exactly. Yeah. So if, if Riku or Ilka or Timo or any of the others, want to introduce a founder to me, then I'll take the call right away. Yep. Someone I trust and here's a, you know, a person that they want to introduce. I think that's, that's the best way in general to get in touch with VCs. Mm. Uh, I think if another VC sends me a deal, I'll be a bit more <laughs> on my toes, right? Okay. Yeah, you're at the, the top. <laughs> you don't, you don't think it's good, but you think it's good enough for me, okay? Yeah, yep, yep. makes sense. That being said, I think there's a lot of, uh, we still take the call. I mean, it's not like I wouldn't answer those. I think there's uh, one learning so far uh, after being a VC for five years is that the there's plenty of opportunities to make a contrarian decision mm. in my business and backing a team that everyone else has said no to already. So for me, it's not a red flag if all the others say it's not good. I need to make up my own mind. Do I believe this will be a great company? That sounds good. Then. Let's go talk a bit about uh, working with these founders. Like, how do you like to work with founders? Are you proactive, like your team? Like, or is it more about like, hey, we really lo- love to be pulled in, in a sense? Like, what, what's your thoughts there? Now it's been a bit different with, with the COVID and, and, you know, not being able to travel so much. But in, in general, I think the way I work with the founders that we have, uh, let's say uh, every two weeks, I have a quick catch up, 30 minutes with each each founder and we talk about what problems we're facing or what we can help out with or any major developments in the game i also play all the games so sometimes i have feedback on what i think works and, and doesn't work yeah. uh, we also have whatsapp you know chats so i think with, with most of the founders that i work with i have a, a continuous dialogue uh, yeah. on a weekly basis mm-hmm. we have short uh, questions and answers together that's the day-to-day. And then we have the operating team at Ticket Ventures, so people with uh, more functional expertise. And uh, sometimes uh, their help is initiated by, by me. And I see, uh, let's say, for example, let's say uh, a game a company is just about to release the game and their uh, KPI dashboards are you know, just being developed and they are missing some reports that we found very helpful in other gaming companies. Then maybe Henrik in, in our team who has an analytics background. He was the VP of analytics at Spotify for, for five years. And has now been working with us for five years with all of our, mainly the consumer companies. 
then he could come in and speak to the data person in the startup and then help work with them on, on figuring out, should we do the RPI curves like this or should we do the ROAS report like that? What's, what are the costs and uh, pros and cons of, of both ways? So that's much more hands-on, but it's, that could be initiated by us. It could also be initiated by the founders saying that we would love to have your input here. Can we talk to this person in your team? So it's really depending on the situation, I would say. Yeah. Since you guys are, are sort of at that stage where the scaling can commence, do you feel that that's uh, where, in a way, like in a few years, uh, there will be more uh, mature companies, mature gaming projects going on? But you, you might have already exited most of these companies. But in an, in a sense, like when when there's more mature companies in your portfolio, do you need do you think you need to change how you operate currently? Maybe I think I think we are going to continue to be most important at that stage of Series A when yeah. they start to scale. Yeah, I think if if I also look at Small Giant Games' journey, I think we were much more helpful the first year as they were establishing their growth and yeah. setting up the structures, and yeah. maybe less so the la- the second year before they were acquired by Zynga. I think it's natural that the the best teams and you know they learn very fast and they they always know their business better than we do. And in a later stage business, they've also either learned themselves or attracted great talent to fill the gaps where they needed to. Yeah. So I think our, our sweet spot in terms of our value add is around Series A. Yeah, that makes sense. Then, of course, like you guys are at that stage when there's the board is already in place. Usually, like what you usually want to take a board seat, right? But what, what yes. is the approach there? So we, we, we want to be an active investor. We want to ideally be one of the larger investors in the company. Mm. We, we typically strive for, for 20% or, or 15 at least. And we want to be the clear lead investor. We don't, uh, we, we don't prefer to join other p- investors' rounds uh, as we want to make sure we, we have a commitment, uh, both investment-wise, but also a percentage ownership commitment that if we invest a lot of money and time, we want to be one of the uh, upside owners in that case. Uh, in the board, then that usually means that we come in and, and come from nowhere and become one of the major owners. So it's really also depending on which company it is. But it's also it's hard to know what the board was like before we joined, right? So I'm, I don't know what changes after we join, but yeah. I think typically in any companies, not just gaming, but any startups journey, is that the latest lead investor you have that came in is mm. probably the most active one. Because they come in with fresh eyes, they come in with uh, capital and, and a lot of ambition. So they typically become, I think, the more vocal board member. And that essentially, the longer you've been in a company, the less active you become as a board member. That's my experience, at least. Yeah. What is a good format that you've seen work really well for a gaming company that's scaling, like at that stage where it's sort of like is... Yeah. Like critical that there's scaling happening. Like, what what is the the board meeting like at that stage? That, that, it's actually pretty funny because I think a lot of the board meetings end up uh, maybe me and, and someone else on the board talking about the game with the founders. Yeah. So let's say you have a three hour board meeting. We could spend two hours talking about different product features and yep. you know, is this more fun than that? And then you have another maybe investor in there who is not specifically a gaming investor. And they're like, is this even a board meeting? You know, shouldn't mm-hmm. we be talking about the PL and and uh, you know <laughs> administrative yeah. stuff? I, I think it's actually pretty unique with the gaming companies that 
when you have this, you know, the, the passion for games, you end up talking about the product much, much more than in other companies. Yeah. And, and that's the most fun part. I mean, if, if you were to look at my screen time on my iPhone, it's like, you know, a majority of my screen time is playing various games on, on test flights and, and trying to give feedback to, to the founders of those games. Yeah. Um, How do you manage to put time into those games? Like, this, <laughs> like comes into <laughs> mind, like it's, uh, it's still like you want to be sort of like at that stage where you know the game, but you also want to know it. Like, what is the early experience, the mid experience, the late experience? Do you have yeah. any preferences? There? I mean, I think you have to think it's fun and you have to play a lot. Like Empires and Puzzles, I was the top 100 player for a majority of the time that I was uh, on the board of a small giant. Yeah. And I played it a lot. I think that's a part of the job. Yeah. So if, yeah. I, if I'm to be able to provide valuable feedback, I need to be living as one of the players. Yes. And it's the same with the other companies that we're investing in. I play Battle Legion every day. I play Redecore uh, almost every day. Otherwise, I think the feedback becomes uh, too shallow. Or if, if you don't play the game, you, you shouldn't have an opinion, essentially, right? Yeah. Yeah. Comes pretty tough otherwise. Then thinking about like you guys are at that stage where you're so much hands-on, but like having that founder who raises funding for the first time, like what is your suggestion on on these kind of like investor updates? Maybe they even don't have a board yet. But like yeah. what what are your thoughts on on monthly investor updates? It's not something we push for, but we, we have a, a basic monthly reporting. So we have a Google Sheet where companies report in the same, let's say, 10 metrics every month. Right. And that's because we need to have a paper trail for our investors, our LPs, and our auditors. Yeah. We need to be able to show the trajectory of companies when we create our fund reports and say, this company is worth X. And then maybe the auditor comes back and says, why do you say X? And then we say, okay, here are the, here are the numbers. Yeah. Uh, so we have that. I separate that out because typically most companies that we work with aut- automate that part. So they just automatically fill out the, the spreadsheet once a month with a script. So mm. it's a non-issue. Be- besides that, we don't have any requirements for a monthly report or an update because I'm already in touch with with the CEO typically on you know on a continuous basis and on a phone call every two weeks. So besides that, no, no. I mean, and then the the board decks. I think that there are difference or frequency of board meetings. I think you either go. With some companies, we do monthly and one hour, if if it's the phase where you need, we need to have more frequent check-ins. And in some companies, it's every two months or every three months, and it's a bit longer. I think you can adjust that as you go along, as a, according to the preference of the of the team and, and the investors. But I, I would prefer if the the founders didn't spend a, a you know a lot of time creating reports. Yeah, it can like what I've noticed with like the cases that I've been involved is like. You, you end up anyways having several investors on board. So like it, you can't manage like 10 people on WhatsApp anymore. Uh, so it, it can be a bit like, you know, the, the time that you spent on writing a thorough update feels like the, the model that should work. Yeah. And if you have a script to update those numbers, that's really awesome that like I need to add that on my templates list on the, the site. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Uh, like I have some final questions for you, Lars. Like, what is your favorite book and why? There, there are a lot of books I like, but I think the one that comes to mind is Into the Wild, which they also made a movie out out of. So I think most people 
I've seen that. I think that was that was a fantastic uh, book. I read it when I was in college. I think what I like about it is his, you know, the main characters. I think his name is Christopher. Uh, Chris, his his decision to just pursue his own adventure. I think that that was really inspiring. Uh, I, I can't claim that I've you know done anything like that, but I, th- I thought it was very inspiring that he just decided to do exactly what he wanted, and he went out in, in nature. I'm, I'm not as much, you know, I don't have the passion for nature per se, but I think it was very uh, inspiring to, to read about this. Uh, I think it's partly based on a true story as well. Uh, yeah. Have, have you, have you read, read it? Have you seen the I movie? haven't read it, but I've seen the yeah. movie. <laughs> there isn't a game out yet on that one. But I, yeah. I want to ask you about uh, like an additional question. What's your favorite game? Um, wow. I would say, I mean, if, of all game categories, or, or uh, that's, a, that's a tough question. <laughs> maybe, I think the one that I've spent the most time in my life playing is probably chess. Mm. Um, it's, it's not the one I play the most right now. So it's, but if you look at my lifetime, it's the one I've, I've enjoyed the most playing with my friends. Or, but otherwise, you know, I think the match threes are a lot of fun, like Candy Crush and, and Empires and Puzzles. Uh, yeah. And, and any of the games that are in, in the companies that we work with now are also a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Do you have a, a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today? Story on... N- not necessarily a, a, a story on how... I mean, my, my work in, in investing in game companies, I think, is shaped a lot by my time at, at King and how we made games at King and how we focused on retention. And So I think that's a natural uh, background to that. I think. Otherwise, I'm coming back to that, you know, that uh, con- uh, that that you can make bets when when no one else is willing to make the bet. Hmm. Uh, I think that has proven to be to have a high risk appetite. Obviously, as a venture capital investor, I need to have that, right? But I think I've had that uh, throughout my whole life, sort of seeking out. Uh, risky alternatives. Sometimes it pays off, and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, for example, I moved to to the U.S. to study when I was eighteen uh, for four years, and, and I'd almost never been to the U.S. before I did that. Uh, I think that sort of has shaped my professional career as well. That sometimes embrace the unknown and 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 go for the high risk option. If it doesn't work out in a successful way, then at least you have the experience of what it means to to go for the high-risk option and fail, and that could help you in your next decision or you know, career choice or whatever you want to do. To me, that, that resonates a lot more than going for the safe route and maybe spending a whole life or a whole career uh, doing the same thing or uh, not daring to do. Maybe that's also why I liked Into the Wild. You know, go, going after the, the risky route, to me, is much more appealing and more fun mm. than, than the... Uh, Maybe status quo or say. Uh, that being said, I, I would I wouldn't advise it for. It's not advice to anyone because yeah. <laughs> if people then go out and you know take the risky route and then yeah yeah. But but for me, it's worked really well to to uh, you know to for example in this case also you know moving from king to starting a venture fund is quite the change in life and uh, mm. maybe not the safest route. I could have stayed at king. I mean, yeah. king is an extremely successful company uh, today as well. Yeah. But for me personally, it felt like a, a good idea to reinvent myself and try something new. Yeah, I guess that's, that unites entrepreneurs in a way, like taking on risky things and landing some place where you just need to say, like, 
here I am. <laughs> like, what's going to happen now? <laughs> yeah. See, and it's sort of like, there's like the, the fear is sort of like not there for you. And we only have one life, right? It's, it's pretty exactly. sad when you think about it that way, but we only have one life and you have a certain number of years where you are, you know, on top of the world and, and, and uh, being uh, and in your prime. And I think it's, it's important to do the most out of that and, and, and go for your dreams, so to say. It sounds very cliche, but uh, r- rather than sitting 10 years later and regretting that you didn't try it out. Yeah, good words. Hey, last question for you, Lars. What's the best way for people, entrepreneurs in gaming, to get in contact with you? Through you. Yes. <laughs> Email you. Thank you. you can. <laughs> no, but as I said before, I, I think through through the people, that the founders that we already work with, it's one, I, I, I'm not... That's one good way. Uh, the other one is that ideally we, we are the ones who, who try to get in touch with with you. You know, we had we had the mother brain approach, and we we I do play a lot of games, uh, and and I, I know some you know people in the industry. So ideally, we are the ones who are chasing to get in touch with you uh, yeah. than the other way around. Uh, yeah, I think the whole dialogue, founders talking to founders, should be happening more. Yeah, that's a good place to at least start to, to get an intro to Lars. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks, man. This was so much fun. Uh, take care there in in Sweden. You're in Sweden, right? <laughs> I'm in Sweden. I'm in Stockholm. And uh, thank you as well. It's been yeah. an honor to be on the podcast. I'll keep listening to your episodes. Thanks, man. Really appreciate thanks. it. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye-bye. Take care. The new online course, Pitch Your Games Company, is live on the Elite Game Developers website under Courses. If you're looking to raise funding for your game startup and want to know what it's all about, I recommend that you take a look. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye.